0: You have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time. Angela Davis. Hey everyone and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. If you haven't entered our book giveaway yet, there's still time to do that. We're giving away a copy of Mayo Clinic Strategies to Reduce Burnout, 12 Actions to Create the Ideal Workplace. It's written by Drs. Stephen Swenson and Tate Shanafelt and it's a validated blueprint for success. It's a great read for anyone looking to tackle burnout or build a better culture. The information can be found on our Instagram and Twitter. And while you're there, if you haven't followed us, be sure to do that as we're constantly putting out new content. And if you got the time, we'd really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Today we have Dr. Stephen Swenson on the show. Dr. Swenson is dedicated to the support of thoughtful leaders who aspire to nurture the fulfillment of their staff. He's a recognized expert, researcher, and speaker in the disciplines of leadership and burnout. Dr. Stewenson serves as Senior Fellow of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, where his focus is joy and work. He works as the Leadership Theme Editor for the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst, and for three decades, he served patients at the Mayo Clinic. As Director for Leadership and Organization Development, he co-led the Professional Burnout Initiative and oversaw the development of 4,100 physicians and 232 key leaders. As Chief Quality Officer, he established the Quality Academy wherein 37,000 colleagues of his were certified as fellows during that tenure. As chair of the Department of Radiology, he and his team used their value creation system to improve the welfare of both patients and professionals. As professor in the Department of Radiology, he was principal investigator of two NIH grants and has authored three books as well as 207 articles. He was honored with the Diamond Lifetime Achievement Award served as as the president of two international societies and founded the Big Sky Group. Dr. Swenson has been married for 43 years, has two children, and has completed 39 marathons. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey
1: everybody, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We're so glad to welcome Dr. Steve Swenson onto the show. Dr. Swenson,
0: how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing terrific. Thanks. Good to be here.
0: Awesome. And Peter, how are you? I'm doing really well. Super excited for today's conversation. Dr. Swenson, you were actually someone that one of our previous interviewees had suggested we bring on on the show, Dr. Brent James. How did you guys meet?
2: Brent James is an amazing man. And um, we met maybe 20 years ago. I was at Mayo Clinic for 35 years and had three major careers. And my First, one I led a large department, and then I led quality, and then I led leadership development. And when I led quality for our 23 hospitals and 70 some clinics for the organization, um, the first thing I did was reached out to the national and international leaders in the space in healthcare. And so uh, I met with and visited with uh, uh, Don Berwick and Rain Bizignano. the founders. Uh, Don's the founder of the. Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the first and largest uh, healthcare quality and safety organization in the world, and Brent James, uh, who has been internationally recognized for his work in uh, statistics and, you know, systematic approach to systems engineering and healthcare for reliability. And so those are three of the top leaders. And, and so I met him uh, when I Initially took that role, and then I started a group called the Big Sky Group. We met in Big Sky first and uh, annually with the top quality leaders in accreditation and research and clinical practice, and we're still meeting, uh, you know, close to twenty years later of, in a learning community. We get together and kind of like this. We have a conversation. We don't have powerpoints. We visit for two days straight with uh, ideas, and we go back refreshed and. Uh, and then come back uh, next year and do the same thing. So that's how I met Brent. That sounds awesome. I know you had a great conversation with him, and there's so much to learn from people like Brent who have done real work and uh, and are willing to um, put it down on paper and then share it with the world. There's that extra discipline uh, that helps the teacher when you teach because in order to teach something, you have to understand it at a different level and be able to communicate in a way that's understandable, instead of just doing it.
1: Yeah, and when, when we interviewed Dr. James, he actually sent us right to your book. And oh. we just want to say thank you so much for, for sending both of us a copy. And that's kind of one of what we wanted to talk about for a little bit, is how you got around to writing this book. It's called Mayo Clinic Strategies to Reduce Burnout. So tell us about how you developed these ideas and came about writing the, the book you wrote.
2: Well, thank you. I, it, it, was a, it was a labor of love, um, and it was basically a way to uh, distill and uh, hopefully share with as many people as possible the lessons that we learned at Mayo Clinic and our leadership team. And And so it's basically what I learned in 30 years at the Mayo Clinic. Um, in order to, to care for our caregivers for the best possible patient care, You have to have some understanding of what it means to run an organization or a department or an ICU, and you need to have some understanding of quality uh, about driving out waste and variation and defect, and as a process of continually making something better, as medical students, as residents, as fellows, as nurses, as doctors, we have a shared responsibility to do our work, to improve our work, and to care for each other. And then the third role I had was uh, head of leadership development for our 4,500 physicians at Mayo. And basically all three of those elements of leadership, leadership development, of quality and participative management and co-creation of the highest quality, and of course running a unit, those are woven in together in a fabric then that allows us to have esprit de corps. Um, engagement, fulfillment, satisfaction, and joy in work. and each one of those elements, leadership development, quality, and um, running a unit uh, are important, and all of them are necessary to have to approach ideal work. And uh, no business sector has ideal work across the board. And certainly healthcare doesn't, it has enough meaning and purpose. Some of us have enough control over our lives, but what we see in healthcare is that even though we attract some highly resilient, motivated, passionate people, like the two of you, we end up squeezing out that vitality and idealism systematically over Medical school residency fellowship and the early careers. So, if you look at pre med students, above average mental health, lower levels of motion, emotional exhaustion, lower levels of cynicism, higher levels of confidence, less social isolation, all of the positive attributes of, of uh, emotional and psychological well being, pre med students are above average. And and yet within a half a dozen years, healthcare professionals, including physicians, especially physicians, have the highest rate of professional burnout, over 50% for all the specialties, higher in primary care and a few others. And, and so um, we, the, the book and the articles we've written and the research is what we found at Mayo can make a difference for these really good people Trying to do something important for our society and patients and families, and are struggling with compassion fatigue and emotional exhaustion and PTSD, and and, and from systems that are messed up and perfectly designed to burn them up.
0: So, you briefly mentioned esprit de corps, um, and this is one of the, the biggest ideas that you set forth in your book. So, I was hoping that you could elaborate a little bit on one, how you kind of realized the idea of esprit de corps, how you cho- why you chose to phrase it that way and also why you chose
2: to make it French? <laughs> I love the word esprit de corps and I'm not saying it like a French person would. I, was a, I studied German for you know, a decade growing up and was an exchange student in Germany, but I love the, 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 the word uh, because it talks about the spirit of the body. And and so if if, if we were designed to design the three of us together the best possible work environment, it would be about the spirit of the body, about camaraderie and engagement and fulfillment and joy. The adjectives that we'd all put down it would be some composite like that, and that's what I that's how I look at a de corps. And basically, there are three major elements, and for ideal work, and. We know how we can move our ICU team, our primary care team, our outpatient clinic, uh, the operating rooms into that space if we choose to do it together. A leader can't do it by him or herself. The staff can't do it by themselves, the students, the residents. It has to be this team doing it. And so this spirit of the body, the spirit of core comes into play that way.
1: Something else that that caught my eye when I was reading your book was the way that you phrased work-life integration instead of the phrasing of work-life balance. Can you talk for a minute about why why you made that distinction and why you chose to call it integration instead of balance?
2: Yeah. So in the old days, when I I can talk about the old days because I'm older and dirt, it was easier to stop your day at five o'clock at night, because most communication was done with a dictaphone or a typewriter or um, a, a, we didn't have mobile telephones. It, 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 and you, you, you dictated something out, your secretary typed it and then you signed it. And, and so it's was, it was a much slower pace and it was easier to uh, not have uh, your uh, family life or your recreational life uh, melded with the, the work life. But now with uh, technology, and and technology can be used for goodness, and in large part it is, um, technology allows us to be more productive and it allows us to uh, connect in ways we couldn't with, you know, in the old days, you had to go in if you were on call. And sometimes you can do that remotely. And now you can do telehealth remotely for it's better for patients and families. And so I I think a healthy way to look at it is, is how we integrate that. And, and if we look at our work as a calling, so there are three ways you can look at at your work. It can be a job uh, where basically it's extrinsic reward, extrinsic motivation, and you, you're basically working for the paycheck and your rewards and, and your um, purpose and meaning comes from how you spend that money when you're not at work. And Professor Bella looked at this and, and, and uh, this described these three relationships back in the 80s at UC Berkeley. The second is the relationship is one of a career where your relationship to your work is one of advancement and achievement and titles and publications and cures of patients and, what, what, um, and that's a, a mixture of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. And, and the third is a calling. And calling, um, um, that relationship, it's about a third for each across America, but it's way overrepresented in healthcare. Most of us went into healthcare because we are, were driven not by the extrinsic reward and the paycheck, but of what it could do, how we could help people. And, and so the people who look at their work as a calling, they still need a paycheck to pay the rent, but they they're, they get up in the morning because they're excited about learning about nephrology, and they're learning and working with the team, a suite of core, or helping a patient, or helping epi- epidemiology w- with the the pandemic, whatever it is that drives them. And so that's where this work-life integration comes in. We did a study at Mayo, Tate Shanafelt, uh, lead author on this. He looked at doctors and um, we, we asked like 485 of them, what was the most meaningful day or thing they did at work? And those physicians who were doing at least 20% of their time, doing what they declared as most meaningful to them, had half the rates of burnout of those who weren't. And so that's where this, so the the meaning and purpose of life, what drives us uh, uh, on this planet while we're here is some combination of work and life. And ideally it is, if it's just life beyond uh, your paycheck and, and what you do at the hospital or the clinic or the post office or the grocery store, then you're missing out on a huge opportunity for a fulfilling life that builds resilience because you have less burnout then. So
1: I I really like that phrase because I feel like when it's termed as work-life balance, it's almost like you're working so you could get home and you could live. And not that you're integrating them and your work actually fulfills your life and you combine them together in order to create meaning and to create your fulfillment.
2: Yeah, you said that very well. And, if, and so maybe a better way for me to say it next time is, is like what you just said, is that if you can uh, have a relationship with your work that's not a job, just the paycheck, and maybe a little bit of career, but mostly a calling, then, then you're not looking at one or the other, a zero-sum game. You're looking at this integration where you can have a force multiplier of some of your work, not all of it, uh, inspires you. And those around you, and that makes your life better, and and you don't have to wait to be fulfilled to get home at night.
0: I think it's. I wanted to ask then why why do you think that burnout is starting to become such a problem, not just for doctors, but but for medical students who are presumably working from a place of calling, but feel a lot of the daily frustration. They seem to be very. Um, dissatisfied with maybe the way that their education is going and they complain a lot about it, what would you want to say to them to maybe help them either realign their compass with their calling or help mitigate some of the burnout that they might be feeling?
2: It's harder in medical school because you have less control over your life. The one thing that we've learned over the last decade is that medical schools who have a pass-fail grading system or assessment system have substantially lower rates of burnout among their medical students than those who have a graded system. And so so the theme there and the reason is that in a A, ABCD fail setup, Peter and Caleb are competitors. In a pass fail system, Peter and Caleb are colleagues and comrades and more likely to support each other. And so, so that was a systemic issue. And most medical students have now. Medical schools have moved now to make it more of a collegial supportive. You're still competing against yourself, but but, you're, but it's not a zero sum game of there are only 17 A's in your class, and and you're fighting for them. And and so I think um, if you look at um, the, the there are three basic human needs I alluded to a moment ago, and 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 if you look at those in any part of our journey through life we're talking about medical school now, you can say, well, what is it that we could do to make them better? So agency, camaraderie, and coherence. Agency is is feeling like you have some control over your life. And Michael Marmot, this big principal investigator in the White House study, a huge epidemiology study in the United Kingdom, found that people, workers, all different stations of life, workers who felt like they had more control over their life, particularly their life at worked, lived longer. They had lower rates of cancer and cardiovascular disease and back pain just because they felt they had better mental and psychological well-being because they had some control over your life. And in medical school, in general, you have less control over your life because you're learning and you're and you're on a team where people have a lot more experience and And, and you're, you're not anyways, you you know, all the reasons, but in general, students and even residents have less control over their work life. And some of that can be in the micro environments where a good chief resident or a good attending um, uh, surgeon or internist or family doc on a service can empower residents and students and nurses to feel like you're co-creating something instead of having the answer being given to you. So, so one of the spirit, the spirit of this agency and the the best way to approach most things in life, whether it's with a patient or with its coworkers is not to do with not, I'm sorry, not to do to something, do do something to someone, not to do something for them, but in general, whenever possible, whether it's a patient, a student, a resident, a coworker to do something with them and you usually get better answers and you always get better team dynamics and you always get lower rates of frustration and burnout because you've given them agency to have some control of their work life and you've respected them by asking their opinion, their ideas, and, and uh, that's one of those basic human needs that's harder at least in the systems we designed, have happened in medical school.
1: So another idea that you talk about in your book that's kind of along the same lines is that, is the idea of if you ask somebody in a company or a hospital, do they use the word we or do they use the word I? Can you talk about that test that you discussed in your book for a minute?
2: Yeah, that's the pronoun test. And and so basically, um, uh, if leaders practice servant leadership, where they see their purpose in heading up this team of medical students or the surgical team or a primary care team, whatever it is in healthcare or other parts of life as well. If they, they see that as first seeking to understand, Caleb, what do you think we should do? Peter, here's all the information we have that's not confidential, I communicate with you transparently. Let's figure this out together. So that's giving us agency, and and so then if you if if you had a work environment like that, that you would be more likely to say that our team in the ICU we saved that patient's life, or we did the best we could have uh, g- given how this patient came in after the car accident. And so collectively then you can share the joy and collectively you can diffuse the pain when things don't turn out well. And of course the opposite of that is if it's they or them, you feel like you have less agency, someone else's control in your life and you don't share in the joy and the purpose and meaning as much uh, when someone says that it was their idea and they fixed it and didn't acknowledge other members of the team that really had some contribution uh, to that. If the process went in the right way, in a way that gets to camaraderie, that second human need, and c- camaraderie. If you look at d- determinants of health, and so you look at diabetes. That's a huge determinant of health. It's it's going to affect uh, your your mortality rate. It's going to affect your infection rate. It's going to affect Uh, uh, many things. Um, You look at hypertension, huge determinant of longevity, huge determinant of cardiovascular disease. You look at tobacco use, 30 pack years. That's a huge cause of multiple cancers, including lung cancer and cardiovascular disease and COPD. There's another determinant of health that actually is more powerful than diabetes, hypertension, and tobacco use. And that's social connectedness. Or the downside, uh, social isolation and loneliness has a more powerful impact on our well-being than any of those three other ones. So, so camaraderie has, it, 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 human beings are social animals. We need to be connected to other students, other you know, life partners, men and women, a dozen different ways. And when we lose that, it has emotional and mental and psychological ramifications. And it has physical ramifications. People actually have shorter lifespans when they aren't socially connected. And so, so that's the other piece of the we, they, if, if, and us, them. If, if we feel like we're part of the team and we talk like we're part of the team and the organization, we identify with that mission of, of Wayne State, and, um, and we can't wait to get to work because it's more of a calling, and we're welcomed by our team of comrades, then um, we're better off in so many ways. And, and yes, many of these are organizational responsibilities and leaders' responsibilities, but the three of us can control some of that in our lives and not say that we're just victims of, well, I was with a bad team. Well, bad teams are hard to fix, but you can still say, how can I make a friend at work? And is there someone on the team or related to the team that can be a comrade or a confidant or that I can put together for my own social well-being if it doesn't exist on this rotation or in this medical school class or in with this Dean or whatever. So we, but part of it is how we look at this and can craft some relationships so that we're not just victims of a bad system. We have a lot of bad systems in healthcare, but we shouldn't give up uh, because some of that in this shared responsibility, we can control.
0: So I feel like I have a lot of follow-up questions, but um, what you just actually gave us a nice segue into the next thing that we wanted to talk to you about which is the Mayo Clinic model of care. Um, so could you introduce our listeners to a little bit what the, of what that is? And then I want to ask about how this model of care has positively impacted the culture of training medical students, residents, and physician leaders at the Mayo Clinic.
2: I love the question. And and so I I spent 35 years at Mayo Clinic. I did some of my training there in Boston Wisconsin, and Wisconsin. I think uh, there's no system that is perfect. But if I were to design a system that aspired to the best possible work environment for healthcare providers and the best possible um, patient uh, care um, and family care organization, it would have these elements. Um, It would have woven into the fabric patient-centeredness. And the, the primary value at the Mayo Clinic uh, is that the, is the needs of the patient come first. And if you were to ask, Mayo has about 65,000 staff, colleagues in uh, 23 hospitals in six or seven states. Uh, and you ask a custodian, an accountant, staff nurse, a medical student, what's the primary value at Mayo Clinic? They would, almost virtually everyone would say, the needs of the patient come first. And when we have meetings and we stray from that, managers, uh, nurses, doctors speak up and say, what about the needs of the patient? So so I think the first element is connecting to the meaning and purpose of our work by focusing on what our job is really about. And that sounds so obvious and, and trite, but if you were to go across the country or across the Western world, there are way too many organizations in healthcare where they might talk about the patient being at the center, but it's really about parking privileges or making more money or turf battles or you know whatever it is. It, it, and the patient and the family are, is often forgotten. So the first element is patient at the center. The second is you wanna make sure that you're working as a team. So most private, Practice in most traditional academic medical centers country are set up in a non-system. They're set up as disintegrated practices, where the cardiology group is a cost is a profit center and a cost center in an independent entity, whether in private practice or an academic center, and and they are driven for things that help cardiology or surgery or family medicine, or nephrology. They're separate entities. And and so they're set up to compete with each other. So I think the, the second element is having an integrated practice where all the financial metrics and all the financial incentives and all of the culture is for nephrologists to work with primary care physicians, to work with transplant surgeons, to work with administrators, and to have no barriers uh, to that kind of communication. So the Mayo Clinic Model Care is set up that way. Cardiologists, if 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 that group generates more money that year, that's not their money. It's Mayo Clinic money. If family medicine might lose a little bit one year, or cardiac surgery makes a ton of money that year, that's not their bottom line. That goes to the Mayo Clinic and then is distributed meritoriously with the patient in the middle looking at how can this integrated group practice uh, work better and better serve patients and um, and fit together. The, the third element is that it's led by practicing clinicians. And over 90% of hospitals in this country are run by administrators. That's fine. Um, but I think the ideal system is to have, I mean, can you imagine a Symphonic orchestra led by someone who studied conducting and studied, we talked about cello, studying how to play a cello, but never has played the cello before. And you're asking that man or woman to lead an orchestra, even though they've never played the cello. So in healthcare, To me, and I understand that there are other ways that work and medical centers that work just fine with good care, but I think the ideal is that nurses are led by nurses who are still touching patients, and physicians are led by physicians who are still touching patients, and pharmacists are led by pharmacists who are still involved in giving vaccinations and and uh, mixing up chemotherapy and social workers, et cetera. And so the model at Mayo is, you know, how can a, what, a $16 not for not-per-profit organization be run by doctors, 95% of whom don't have an MBA or a graduate degree in management or um, business or anything? Well, it's a dyad system. So Mayo Clinic is physician-led. All the physicians are practicing physicians and they partner with full-time uh, finance leaders and business leaders and management leaders and HR leaders in a team approach that's led by practicing physicians. And this is a longer answer than you want, but there's one more element, and I think it's critical. And, and so the and that's how we compensate physicians and all healthcare professionals. And the vast majority of the country, physicians are on some sort of production model. Production model. Creates a financial conflict of interest with patients. Now, I'm not saying that every decision is wrong or tainted, but if there's a financial incentive to do a cabbage surgery, or to take out a gallbladder, or to do an extra echo, or to admit a patient that handle them as an outpatient, or work with them as an outpatient, then that can blur decisions. And if you look at the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, Brent James probably talked about this, 40% of the over $3 trillion we spend in this country in healthcare is waste by the most credible leaders, including physicians in the country, are saying that, and it's true in most of the Western world, and a large part of that 40, so it's, it's close to a billion dollars of Benjamins that we're burning every year. A large part of that waste is overuse, and our system, largely fee-for-service, is set up to overuse tests and procedures and, and um, surgeries and so on. And, and so the, the, the model of care that I think is ideal is purely salaried physicians with no financial conflict with the patients, led by practicing clinicians, and an organization designed to be integrated so we work together, instead of designed to be disintegrated because departments have their own bottom lines with underscored, bold-faced, the patient at the center. So I want to ask you
1: about that integration that you keep mentioning. And it it came across in your book when I was reading it as well, is there's this huge team at Mayo and there's hospitals all across the US, but they all fall underneath that premise that you mentioned, the patient comes first. And I, I even heard you say that there's over 255 committees within the organization, and they all meet independently, but they all work together as one common goal and one common purpose. How do you think Mayo has been so successful in being integrated when that's such a challenge with so many different players and so many different hospitals across the U.S.?
2: Well, it it comes largely to strategy and culture. And so you change culture one behavior at a time. And if, if we walk by a a uh, practice or an act or behavior, then that's a behavior that we ex- accept. So if we walk by a uh, attending physician, belittling a medical student or sarcastically addressing a nurse, and we don't say anything, then that's a behavior we accept. So, so it's, 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 So, but if we accept, if we say, no, that's not how we do it at Wayne State, one way or another, maybe directly or indirectly, then we're working to improve the culture to where it should be. So all of us have responsibility to work on our culture, one behavior at a time. Um, The strategy piece of it, so Mayo is a a multi-state practice. We have salary physicians, just as I described, uh, but we have one strategic plan for all 23 hospitals, all the 70 some clinics. And and then we have a set of measurements uh, that, that, tell us how we're doing with patient experience and with each of the elements of the strategic plan that we have across the board and we communicate transparently. And um, And then we work with um, each part of the organization to standardize to excellence. So I headed up quality. We, w- we uh, kept track of things like infections and readmissions and patient experience at every part of the whole male Clinic universe and compared our results and our metrics, not to shame and blame people, but to help us learn from each other. Whether you're a small organization or large, you need to communicate transparently with the spirit of learning from each other so that we can all aspire to uh, the best possible practices. And uh, and yeah, it, it takes more work, but the committees and the communication and the uh, uh, learning from each other, Pays for itself a hundredfold over uh, by having a post-industrial streamlined uh, set of systems and processes that we're always looking. You know, so we Mayo is the largest solid organ transplant organ organization in the country. More livers and hearts and and lungs and kidneys. When we first looked at this, maybe when I was head of quality um, fifteen years ago. We had different outcomes and different practices for kidneys and lungs and hearts and livers at each of the entities and different outcomes and infection rates and we said um, we can do better than this and so we set up specialty councils to compare notes and we found out well florida meal clinic uh, florida had uh, the best results for lung transplants with the lowest costs and so we said let's learn from them and standardize to excellence and and there's no reason they should have better outcomes because their temperatures are higher and their humidity is higher than in Minnesota. So if there's not a reason, uh, we shouldn't standardize just because that's um, a virtue in and of itself. But if but if um, there's a way that we can improve patient care by driving out waste variation defect, of course we should do it. And and that works for the vast majority of things in in healthcare.
0: I think the other interesting thing about the Mayo model that we were talking about is that dyad model of leadership. So we're all about uh, trying to develop the best physician leaders in the future. So I'm curious, how do you prepare um, numerous, the, the new physician leaders to come in? Because from what I understand, you also don't let one person sit in that role for too long to get new perspective.
2: Yeah, that's actually really another important point or element of the, our model of care is that um, we're clinician-led. We have dyads or sometimes triads with doctor, administrator, nurse, um, and everyone has a term limit from our CEO to the chair of medicine to the chair of quality uh, can serve uh, uh, up to two four-year terms in any role. So so it's, you're always looking at this pipeline of leadership development and rotation. Um, and so when I chaired a large clinical department, I had um, three different administrators uh, rotating through and they had spent time in nephrology and surgery and in Florida and in systems and procedures. And so they weren't um, cardiology administrators or cardiac surgery administrators, they were Mayo Clinic administrators. So they helped um, every patient uh, um, physician leader they work with become more of a Mayo clinic leader instead of a parochial, this is my department leader. So um, Terillevs helped in that perspective, and the best leaders through the eyes of the staff and the organization then would have more opportunities to lead if they wanted to, if they didn't like management and leadership, or if they weren't successful through the eyes of staff, Uh, or senior leadership, then they were moved back to something where they were good at taking care of patients.
0: So do you have programs in place to help, say, the person who might be struggling as a leader, but is interested, or someone who's going into their first leadership role?
2: Yes. And so um, I was head of leadership development for almost eight years, which was my last uh, major position at Mayo. And uh, we would have this pipeline graphic of 242 titled physician leadership positions from head of quality to the CEO, to the chair of medicine at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, Florida. And in um, each of those, um, we, had, we, we knew who the incumbent was, the chair, we knew when he or she would be rotating out and each of them had a succession pool. Uh, and we rated each of the succession pools for ethnic and gender diversity and readiness. And so the, the chair of family medicine Uh, would serve up to eight years and he or she would have a pool of five or six usually um, candidates to replace him or her and they would be in different roles in that department or in the organization working on quality or process improvement or working in finance or working in education or working in research and so they're learning to lead in those other roles and getting assessed while they're doing it and we had a coaching staff we trained uh, over 100 uh, uh, physician leaders as executive coaches. So th- I think the best organizations in the Fortune 500 outside of healthcare and within healthcare invest a lot in leadership development because leaders matter. They make a difference for retention and turnover, and they make a difference for quality. They make a difference for in productivity and in operations. And so we'd invest heavily in that. So why don't you think
1: this model has spread everywhere? Is is there something unique to Mayo, whether it's history or it's the people that are there and in place? But why do you think it's hasn't caught on all all across the U.S.?
2: Well, it has spread some, and much less than I would have hoped. But there are there are many organizations that aspire to be uh, integrated group practices uh, with uh, using something like the Mayo Clinic model of care. Uh, Mayo Clinic started 160 some years ago. Um, And so it's been around for a while and it's had time to evolve. Uh, But the Cleveland Clinic uh, adopted our model. The uh, Virginia Mason adopted our model, Scott and White, uh, Geisner Clinic. Uh, There are different variations of the Mayo Clinic model of care, uh, but there are integrated group practices that have many of those elements. But I think if patients ran healthcare, uh, that that would be our system would look look a lot more like this, but the the system we have now is large part driven by our insurance system of fee for service, and and so it's hard to get out of a fee for service. It's hard to get out of the model of care we have with private sector and production models, in a fee for service setting. And, um, and that, you know, the billion dollars of waste, the 40% of 3.3 trillion, all that waste is someone's income. And so it's hard to change that because people will give up something. But um, that's kind of how I would look at why it's not been universally spread. There's some systemic things that are keeping the back from spreading, but not if patients run healthcare.
0: So in your book, you quoted General Norman Schwarzkopf Saying leadership is a potent combination of strategy and character, but if you must be without one, be without strategy. So this begs the question: What traits do you think physician leaders should work on cultivating, and what advice would you give to young physician leaders?
2: I love that what Schwarzenegger said and what Schwarzkopf said, and uh, and it is about character. And we had a, um, um, I think you can talk about character. You can talk about integrity. You can talk about behaviors that are acceptable in our culture. You can, and, and you, you can talk about um, mutual respect for people in all stations of life with all different perspectives. Uh, and, uh, and that's important to talk it and to have the video match the audio. And then I think what we've done at Mayo is we've taken that a step further. where we measure it. And so, what we've done in leadership development, we published this work. Uh, the, our research has shown that there are five behaviors of leaders, uh, and I think this is relevant for medical students, and it's, it's, it's relevant for accountants in a in a in the Fortune 100 companies. It, but we found if we measure these five behaviors through an annual staff survey with questions about the person they reported to, nurse manager. Chair of Rheumatology, whoever was their um, group leader, that, that we found a dramatic increase in the engagement, the satisfaction, the fulfillment of those, uh, um, the, the staff in that work group. And we found substantially lower rates of professional burnout uh, in those groups uh, that related to the, these five behaviors of the leaders. Five behaviors are not rocket science. They're common sense—they're just not common practice. Here, here they are. The five behaviors. The first behavior is thanks for your help today, Peter. You you really helped this family understand their child situation, and you made a difference. Thank you. Second behavior, Caleb. I'm really interested in your opinion. What do you think we should do? I communicate transparently. Here's everything I know about the, the challenge we have as a group. Let's figure it out together. Fourth behavior. I'm interested in your career. What do you wanna be doing five years from now after medical school and how can we work together to help your dream come true? And the fifth behavior is one that we need even more of in this country. Um, And it's a powerful one for esprit de corps is everybody on the team is respected and honored and welcomed regardless of genome or phenome, regardless of how much melanin they have in their skin, regardless of how they dress, whether they worship and who they worship and who they vote for. And um, and, and so it's basically a mutual respect inclusive behaviors of your leader. And and the leaders we found, um, we we studied this in physicians first, 242 physician leaders. It works so well in doctors. We scaled it to studying and using it for 3,300 point of care leaders, nurse managers, accountant supervisors, social worker supervisors, all the way up to our CEO. And was it was an eight to nine to ten percent increase per point, point out of one point out of sixty for every point out of sixty in this annual staff survey, when the two of you answer questions about your leader, there was a close to a ten percent increase in engagement as Rita and a three point three percent to five point three percent decrease in professional burnout if the staff said their leaders genuinely live these five behaviors. So that's, I would say that's a major character.
1: So just to recap for our audience. So we had appreciation for your team members. We had transparent communication. We had interest in your team's careers and your team's goals. We had respect of all people. And what was that fifth
2: one? Interest in your ideas. So, that, so it's about collective, it gets back to this agency thing we started talking about so that the teams make better decisions if leaders first seek to understand and to listen. I really, it's not just checking a box. I really want to know what Peter thinks about. I really want to know what Caleb thinks about this. And, and you study this, diverse teams make better decisions. You look at corporate boards in America, When you add women to the boards that were all men to start, the collective IQ goes up. If you look at people of color on decision-making, you make better decisions and you win. And psychologists study crazy things. If you have a ethnically diverse team playing a murder mystery game, you win all the time if your if your team is ethnically diverse instead of a bunch of white men or by a bunch of white women or a bunch of black men ethnic ethnic diversity helps us make better decisions it helps people feel included and it helps for better patient care so one of the questions we like to
1: close out with our interviews and we just want to say first of all thank you so much for talking to us today it's been a great conversation. I'm sure Peter learned a lot. I definitely learned a lot and I'm very thankful for you coming on. If we'd like to finish our conversations and just ask about what books or pieces of literature would you suggest for physicians and for future physician leaders? Obviously, you know we have your book, uh, Mayo Clinic, Strategies to Reduce Burnout. So we would definitely suggest that to anybody who's listening. But apart from that, what would you suggest for physician leaders and and future physician leaders to to read?
2: You know, I love that question. And I think I think one of the most important things for joy in work and work uh, and and to thrive, and Marine Bizignano taught me this, is to be curious. To always ask why, or why not, or what if. And to always say, well, that's interesting, but why did that happen? And so I think the spirit of inquiry, the spirit of curiosity, the spirit of connecting to the joy of learning is, is, is how I would answer that. And so, so instead of saying, read this book or that book or this article, I would say, always ask questions, be curious, keep learning, and you'll never get old and, and you'll always be refreshed and it'll lead you on paths uh, that you would have never uh, thought possible. I, I did my uh, MBA at Carnegie Mellon when I was uh, chair of a large clinical department, uh, which is unusual at Mayo for doctors to do MBAs. And we, I never had thought about quality. I thought, well, we got that figured out, um, and that was. But but I was curious about it, and I learned more from that course, and that led to this whole next phase of my career as, as a systems engineer, a quality leader at Mayo and then beyond. And and so and it was joyful because I was learning, and it helped organization, and it helped me stay resilient. So so I think that the. Way to look forward is to nurture your love of learning um, as a privilege and an honor, and as one of the most important elements of building your own resilience. So, and and so thank you. Thank both of you, Peter and Caleb, for your time together and for inviting me. Um, I, I love what you're doing, I applaud what you're doing. One of my Favorite times of my life was medical school, but I remember having this much free time, and and you filled that with more work, and uh, and, and you're you're, you're performing a, a wonderful service, at least for the other people you've interviewed, and I reviewed those, and and uh, and I learned a lot from those as well. So thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you.
1: that's all for today thanks everyone so much for listening to this episode of leading the rounds hopefully you were able to learn something new and get a better perspective of how we can improve as leaders if you like our content please subscribe and follow we work to put out a new episode every other week you can also contact us and connect with us on instagram facebook or twitter at leading the rounds or email us at leading the rounds at gmail.com See you next time on Leading the Round.